Well, we continue today answering the question, what is God the Son? This is our third message out of four where we're trying to answer this question. And if you've been here for a while, you know this is one of 20 questions that we're trying to answer as we march through uh, 2009. And boy, we are starting to click 2009 off, aren't we? We're heading to the, to the halfway point already this year. Now, let, let's think about this. What is God the Son? This is a big topic, isn't it? And I'm doing it in four sermons? What is four sermons? Maybe two hours worth of... Not two hours today, don't get nervous. Two hours total of combined messages. Do we really study and and know everything there is to know about Jesus in two hours? Well, of course not, folks. We give our lives, our entire lives, to studying the person of Jesus. Now, you know, when you think about that, when, when somebody gives their life to studying something... A topic, a, a person, a subject. Usually, they're going to be they're going to become experts. They're going to be called an, an expert in the field, or, or they're a preeminent scholar on that subject. Their life may even produce some kind of book, some kind of research, and and people will refer to it. This is their life's work. Well, is that what we're doing? I mean, we're giving our lives weekly, daily, uh, church, everything we do is to know, to understand, to be able to better communicate the person of Jesus Christ. But, but we don't do it to become experts on Christ. We do it to become followers of Christ. We do it not to be a, a scholar of, on Christ, but we do it to be a servant of Christ. And our goal is not to produce a a life work, but it is to produce a likeness to the person of Jesus Christ. Our life is about Him. So obviously we don't boil that down into four messages. Now you might ask the question, well my gosh, on a a topic that big, how, how did you boil it down to four messages? How did you pick the topics that you did? Well, you know what? I got to thinking, I think I could explain better to you how I would boil the message down to today's message even easier than I could four. Because today's message, this one topic, you have to understand. It's what there is to understand about the person of Jesus Christ. And that is His death and resurrection. This is the subject on Christ. Jesus said this was the subject on his life when he said it this way in Mark 10, 45. He said, the son of man has not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's why he came to this world, to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus said, I've come into this world to die. This topic is why I entered this world You and I, as Jesus entered the world, as you and I become followers of Christ, we are sent back out into the world, not with a lot of messages, not with a lot of ideas, not with a a lot of answers, but we are sent into that world with one message. We call it the gospel, the good news. And what, what is the gospel? What is this one message that is to dominate what we talk about in this world as followers of Christ. Well, Paul defines that for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when that's his express subject. He says, I want to clarify for you. I want to make it clear what the gospel is. Here it is. Christ died according to the Scriptures. He died for sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. What does Paul say the one message we have is? The death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. Jesus is sent into the world to die. You and I are sent into the world with the message of His death and resurrection. This is so big that Paul actually says in that same chapter, verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 12 and following, he says, you know what? If this isn't true, this whole thing about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it didn't happen, our faith is worthless. He actually said we should be pitied. We're fools. Our faith will mean nothing in this life, and it won't mean anything in the next life. Now, if you understand, Paul, what he's saying there, folks, you could almost say that the entire message of the Bible, the whole message of the Bible comes down to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we were going to focus on just one thing, if we were going to limit ourselves to understanding just one thing on the person of Jesus, it would be this death and resurrection. So that's what our assignment is today. That's what we're trying to take on. Let's get started looking at the death of Jesus Christ. You know, when we look at this, there's kind of two approaches that we can go to studying his death. I think we more often go this approach over here, where we study what physically happened to him. You know, we usually do that around Easter, maybe in some other points we'll... We'll understand what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal and the trials and the, the beatings that he took. And ultimately it led to that scourging, that, that whipping and the tremendous blood loss. And, and then, of course, it all culminated in the cross. We look at the events of Easter, the what, the when, the why. We look at all that, what physically happened to Jesus, what spiritually happened to Jesus in that moment. Quite often, we're looking at the events leading to and culminating in the cross. I want to go a little bit different approach today. Instead of looking at the events leading to the cross, I want to look at the product coming out of the cross. I want to look at what the result of the cross was. What does it mean in your life and in my life? And the way we're going to do this today, a little bit differently, very simply, we're going to look at five words. I'm going to show you five words used in the New Testament that are always tied to, always about the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. We're going to learn five words. So next week when you come back, we'll have a quick vocabulary test. Bring your number two pencil. No, we're not really having a test. I just heard somebody say, oh, we're not coming to church next week. No test, okay? Five words to help us understand the product of the cross. First word, substitution. Substitution, the New Testament, when talking about Christ and His death, always refers to the substitutionary death. Jesus substituted, He stood in our place, He took on that death on behalf of sinners. Isaiah 53 really emphasizes this and makes it clear when it says that He was crushed for my iniquities. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was scourged. He was whipped. He was brutally beaten so that I could be healed. 1 Peter 2.24 says that our sins were put in His body so that He could die for them on the cross. I belonged on the cross. They're my sins. I belonged on the cross. The punishment was mine. The wrath of God. Now imagine this, as we've talked about what is God the Father, what is God the Son, that trinity, that perfect relationship. And yet it was the wrath of the Father that fell out on God the Son. That's why that scene was so awful. Because the wrath of God was falling out of Him. Should have fallen on me. But Jesus stood in my place. He took that on for me. Mark 10, 45, which I just referred to a moment ago, said that He gave His life a ransom for many. 
That word for, little Greek word there, a preposition, the, the word in the Greek language is anti. It literally means in place of. He was a ransom in place of many. He was a ransom in place of me. I owed a debt. I had to purchase the freedom. And I couldn't. I can't pay it back. I can't cover it. He was that ransom in place of me, in place of you. So the first word we see tied to the cross is, is that word substitution. Jesus Christ was a substitution for you. Second word, redemption. Redemption. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you know what? Your body's not even your own. This is my body. I can do what I want. No, it's not your body. Your body's owned. It was purchased by Jesus Christ. The picture there is literally uh, of Jesus buying us out of the slave market. That's where that word was, was so often used. It was purchasing, redeeming somebody out of the slave market. Jesus purchasing us, purchasing us out of the slave market of sin so that we could be free. As a slave, we were enemies of God. Now you try to put this together and say, no, no wait, that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because you know, when we hear the word slavery... We think of the kind of slavery that was attached to America where you go and, and you capture somebody against their will, you bring them against their will, you, you force them into submission. Usually words like brutality are, are coined with that. And so we think, okay, sin came and captured me. It attacked me. It drugged me into this life of sin. And how does that make me an enemy of God? That's not, that's not my fault if we're trying to make this illustration of slavery work. But see, folks, when the Bible so often uses that word slavery, it's not necessarily referring to the kind of slavery we think of. In the Roman world, there certainly was that kind of slavery where, where a people group, a nation was captured and maybe brought against their will. But that was not the predominant kind of slavery in the Roman world. One third of the Roman population was enslaved. And many of them put themselves there. They weren't captured. They weren't pulled against their will. They put themselves into slavery. Now, again, with our concept of slavery, they go, why would anybody do that? Well, it's kind of obvious. I rang up such debt in my life, there's no way I was going to pay it back. So now, because of indebtedness, the only way I could service that debt was to place myself into slavery. Some people put themselves into slavery because it was actually a lifestyle, maybe with the particular master of the household, it was a lifestyle that offered them the best security, the best provision, the best protection. So people literally put themselves into slavery. And they were all professions of life. There were doctors in the Roman world that were slaves. So when the Bible uses this illustration, that's how it's referring to us being enemies of God. I wasn't captured by sin. I gave myself to sin. I ran up a debt I could not pay and I gave myself to sin. Or maybe I saw in sin the way to profit, the way to be pleasured. I saw in sin the way to be secure. And that's why Jesus says in John 8.34, He who sins is enslaved to sin. And in that enslavement, I made myself an enemy of God. Things are not okay between God and I. I'm not an okay person, a good person. The Bible clearly says I'm an enemy of His until, until by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the work of His on the cross, He came into my life and He bought me out of the slave market. He purchased me out of that position. And now because of that payment, because of buying me out of that, I can now stand in the position to be a friend of God. I've been redeemed. We sing that song, don't we? Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Man, I have an opportunity to be a friend 
of God. Redemption. Third word. Now, this one's a little bit difficult. Propitiation. I mean, you've got to get a running start to spell that word, don't you? I, I think some of that's, that's a word. You can look at it and say, I still can't spell it. You know, on that note, by the way, remember all the notes, all the PowerPoint notes you see, you can go to our, our webpage, chbaptist.com, click on the sermon logo, and you can download the PowerPoint notes. You can download the sermon on iTunes or whatever's easiest for you. You can see the books we recommend. want to keep reminding you that of each week. I want you to be able to keep up with this and learn it and go back to it. That word propitiation. Romans 3.25 says God presented him as a, a propitiation through faith in his blood. The word propitiation simply means a satisfactory payment. Jesus is a full, a complete, a satisfactory payment. Now, here's why this is so important. Folks, think about all, I hope when we get to the end of this, and we will get to the end of it one day, that all these sermons tie together. God's not doing a whole bunch of things, and hopefully in the end it all comes together and makes sense. No, everything God does ties together. Everything He does makes sense. We've learned about His attributes. We saw that God is holy. That means He's not just that he's no, there's no evil, there's no bad, there's not even neutrality. He is holy, pure. Now, how does a holy, pure being accept you and I into a relationship with Him when we're not holy, pure? Does He lower the standard? Does He just acknowledge we've done our best? Does He just acknowledge, well, nobody's, nobody's perfect? No, that wouldn't be holy. Wouldn't be just. Wouldn't be righteous. As we looked at all of God's attributes, he said he never ceases being all of his attributes. So how does the holiness of God, how is the wrath of God satisfied when we're sinners? Jesus satisfies it. That's what that word means, the propitiation. He is the satisfying payment of God. The wrath of God is poured out on him. Remember the substitution. He substituted, but it's not just that he stood there in our place. And took on the wrath of the Father. But it is that He is a satisfactory payment. A complete payment. So the, the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God is all satisfied. And we want that. We don't want God to stop being just and holy. We might think that what gets us in. But we don't want God to stop being just and holy. Christ satisfied that holiness. He is a satisfactory payment. Fourth word. This is a word we do know and are pretty familiar with. Forgiveness. Forgiveness, Colossians 2, 13-14 says it is by our faith in Jesus, His work for us in the cross, by our faith in that blood, that we are forgiven. That we're forgiven of our sins. And there's several words in the Greek language for forgiveness. The one used there, the root of that word, comes from the same word that we get the word grace. The idea being there is that our forgiveness is a free gift. It wasn't free to purchase. Christ paid an awful price a very high price, but to us it is a free gift. You know, I think it's important we see the word freedom or free attached with that forgiveness. Think about somebody in your life that you've hurt. I mean really hurt, not just annoyed them because you rolled the toothpaste up the wrong way or, you know, were in a bad mood one day at work and said something. I'm talking about somebody that you have really hurt, really offended, really is angry with you and not getting over it. And you care. You see, that has to be part of the story. There's some people who are angry. I don't care. Be angry. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about one where you actually care and you feel a great burden of guilt. You want things to be right. You want to be forgiven. I bet most of us have been in a place at least once where we feel like we're almost begging for forgiveness. 
man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I hate myself for doing that. I can't believe I did that. I was stupid. I was an idiot. Please forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And that's not just one conversation. Sometimes that goes on and on and on. Sometimes our sin is so bad, even when they say, oh, you know, I've forgiven you, leave me alone. We still feel guilty, don't we? You know, that's the way we operate in our relationships with each other. But because of what Christ did, that's not the way we have to operate with Him. We're not each day or each time we pray going before God and begging and pleading, oh, you're holy, you're wonderful. I, I know you must hate looking at me. I am sorry I did that. I'm sorry I did that. Please forgive. Folks, I bet most of us have begged and pleaded for God to forgive us. Now, it's right and appropriate to ask His forgiveness. But because of what Christ has done, we don't beg and we don't plead and we don't claw and we don't hope and we don't wish and then get up and still walk away feeling like a load of guilt is on us. We have been freely forgiven. And that's what our faith is in. My faith is not in that I just feel duly horrible about myself or that for the rest of my life I'm going to carry this pack of guilt and maybe, maybe then God will be, you know, see what I did. No, you're forgiven. And He wants you to live like you're forgiven and act like you're forgiven. Fifth word, justification. You should know a little bit about that. We just sang about it. Or actually Tom and the choir sang about it. Justified. Wonderful, incredible word, folks. I think maybe my favorite word in all of this. It's a legal term. Romans 5.1 says, We have been declared righteous by our faith in His blood. We've been declared. You need to literally picture yourself standing in a court of law. You're before that, that big desk and the judge is up there. And man, you are guilty from top to bottom. I mean, all that sin just comes traveling in there with you. The little ones, the big ones, the ones you forgot about, the ones you're still carrying huge amounts of guilt over, it all comes in there. And I'm thinking, man, how am I going to explain this? What kind of lawyer can dig me out of this mess? Well, that lawyer's name is Jesus Christ. And by our faith in His blood, we are literally declared in a legal sense. We are declared righteous. Now, why is that my favorite word? Why, why is this my favorite part of understanding the death of Christ? Because, folks, you and I and a lot of the religions in the world could get really scared about that day we go to stand before God. And we got all kinds of ideas of what that might look like, what that might be like. And mostly it's not good. Did you know in the Islamic faith, you can live a good Islamic life. You can be a good Muslim, you know, hit it most. Like we talk about being Christians. I'm, I'm doing my best. I've, I've done my best. You could live a good Islamic life and go before Allah. And he might be in a bad mood. And if he's in a bad mood on the day you get there, you may have lived a good life, but if he's in a bad mood on the day you get there, well, you're toast. Sorry, it didn't work out. I mean, you know, now we can talk about Islam that way, but I'm not so sure that sometimes we don't struggle with that. Man, what's God going to be like when I get there? Is he angry? Is he mean? H have I covered everything I need to cover? What's going to happen? Folks, our, our faith is not in what we've covered. Our faith is in what Christ covered. Our faith is not in what we've done, it's in what He's done, and it's been settled. You know, again, we picture going to stand before God, you know, and I'm standing there in line. My gosh, what if Billy Graham's in front of me? I don't want to be judged after Billy Graham was just standing there. I mean, if Billy Graham is standing there, hey, Edwin, you go next. You go, man, it's all you, brother. I'm cheering for you. I wonder why you're laughing at me. You want to get in line after Billy Graham? But I mean, folks, think about how realistic that is. I mean, we're standing there, God's judging, and I, I mean, I, I want to stand behind a bad person, don't you? 
You know, I want to kind of look kind of good after that. That's why I say, Edwin, you come on, you go. <laughs> you know, hey, what, what if we get there? What if my day that I go to stand before God, what if, what if my last three days on this earth were kind of bad? I mean, I, I, I live the Christian life. I'm a, I'm a believer. I tried to, to live right. And I, you know, it was an accidental death. Didn't know it was coming. And, and, and as I ended up dying, and now I'm standing before God, and, and I look back, and oh man, I, I mean, I really didn't live the last three days like I was getting ready to stand here. All of a sudden, remember the, how we started this year? Living like you were dying? I mean, we are, and that's kind of a real thing. What if I go before God, and I look back, and, and my last three days were kind of bad? I lied, I cussed, I was mean. I mean, I just did things that weren't appropriate. I don't want that to be the first things we discuss. You know, what if, what if, what if, what if? There's a lot of insecurity about going to stand before God. And a lot of religions really do a mess of trying to give us any kind of security in doing that. The Scripture actually walks through it detail by detail by detail. And it says actually that I can go and stand in that courtroom, stand before that judge who never misses it, who is absolutely going to be just and fair. And I can go there with great confidence and I can go there with great security. Not because of what I've done. Not because of what I did the last three days or the last three months. Not because of who's standing in front of me or who's standing behind me. I can stand there with great confidence and security because of the person of Jesus Christ and what He did for me at the cross. And I have been... Not going to, not might, I have been declared righteous. I have been declared in right standing with God. It's legal. It's done. It is finished. Folks, isn't the death of Christ phenomenal? I mean, it, what a phenomenal thing to even try. I mean, do you realize how little we've talked about this morning? There's a lot of other things we need to understand about this. And even the things I did talk about, all we did was open up. That's it. It is so phenomenal. It is so big what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And we didn't look at the physical. What he actually endured physically and spiritually so that there was a substitution, a redemption, a propitiation, a forgiveness, a justification. We didn't even look at what he endured. What he endured. It is phenomenal. It is huge what he did. So in light of that, maybe we're just barely getting our arms around it. In light of it, can you see how utterly pathetic it is that most people will go stand before God and try to justify themselves based on what they did. I am very saddened that there are a lot of, and I use this word loosely, Christian denominations that actually prepare you and teach you to go stand before God and talk about what you did. That's called the cross plus something. Folks, do you see how big the cross is? It either completely took care of her, it's an utter waste. There's no possible way it's the cross plus. You know, Jesus, thank you very much for what you did. Man, that was huge and you endured a lot. But did you see how good my church attendance was, Lord? And Lord, ten of those commandments, man, I, I, I hit seven of them most of the time. Or, you know, I never did that. Or I did try to do this. I really worked hard at that. We go there before God and we're going to stand there and talk about what we did? Or, or we're going to stand before God and say, well, you know, I appreciate what Christ did, but did you see, did you see all the religious ceremonies I attained? Did, did you see the sacraments I went through? 
Folks, you realize there are churches out there lying to people. When you go stand before God, it is the cross and the cross alone. You're saying, well, Pastor, that, that might just be your belief. Or maybe that's just Southern Baptist belief. No, it's the Bible's belief. And that is why Paul said in Galatians 6.14, As for me, I will never boast in anything. Not one thing will I brag about. Not one thing will I talk about when I stand before God. Save one, the cross of my Savior. There's only one thing we boast on. Only one thing we stand on. The cross of Jesus Christ. How pathetic, how pathetic, how sad that so many people are going to go stand there and talk about, I did this, I tried to do this, I tried to be this. It's the cross. The New Testament, the Word of God, calls us to place all of our faith, all of our confidence, not in the church label we wear, not in the people we're related to, not in the works we did, not in the things that we tried to do. It calls us to put all of our faith in Jesus Christ. And the work he did for us on the cross. And then live like it. See, when I do try to live a good life, when I do try to obey, it's not so that I can pay God back. It's not so that I can show, you know, he, he, here's what I did. Folks, I just want to live in light of what's been done for me. I have been loved incredibly. I want to try to live some kind of life that shows, hey, I recognize I've been loved and forgiven greatly. I'm not living to make an angry judge happy. I'm not living to pay somebody back. I'm living to celebrate what my God has done for me. And that's just his death. Whew. You're thinking, are you going to spend as long on the resurrection? <laughs> that's the best part of the story, folks, isn't it? Man, as phenomenal, as great as the death of Christ is, Sunday's still to come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, I didn't see Jesus rise again. Did you? No, I'll answer the question for you. You didn't. As a matter of fact, I've never seen anybody rise again. I've never seen anybody conquer death. I'm not talking about somebody who dies on an operating table and three minutes later they get that person resuscitated. I'm talking about somebody who goes into a grave, is there three days and comes out. I, I've never seen that. As a matter of fact, for most of the world, that idea is so fanciful, it kind of belongs in the same category as unicorns. You know, I mean, that's a fairy tale. That doesn't happen. And so they would say, I'm crazy, you're crazy for banking your whole life, and I am, banking your whole life on the idea that somebody conquered the grave, that somebody rose again. Well, folks, you know what? That is something that is hard to get your arms around. But I don't think it's crazy. There's a lot of historical evidence that says, as wild as that idea is, it is a reasonable faith. It's not a stupid faith. It's not an illogical faith. It is a very reasonable faith. It's a historical fact that Jesus Christ lived. It's a historical fact that he died on a cross. It's a historical fact that he was buried. It's a historical fact that there is the report of his resurrection. You may reject the idea that he was resurrected. Somebody may say, I don't believe something like that. But you cannot historically reject the report of his resurrection. It was reported. What do you do with all that? Now, folks, my goal today is not to go through the evidence of the resurrection. I've done that before in several sermons. Uh, I also point out a book I recommend. You see it there in your bulletin, I think. Uh, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Great summer read. 
you're heading to the beach anytime soon, grab that one on the way out. Case for Christ by Lee Strobel uh, does a number of things in that book. About a third of the book is on looking at the reasonable evidence, the reasonable faith in believing that Jesus Christ actually walked out of his tomb, actually rose again. Going through things like, what do you do with 500 eyewitnesses? I mean, if folks in a court of law, an eyewitness is pretty strong. 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus Christ resurrected. Well, it was a conspiracy. They were just trying to start a religion. Why? What, what would they get out of telling that lie? They got nothing. You have to remember, they weren't living in the American culture. They were, they were crucified themselves. They were martyred. They were run out of town. People did not like Christians. There was no advantage to saying, I saw Jesus resurrected. And yet over 500 people were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many of them died for that. You can't say it was a conspiracy. People don't die for what they know to be a lie. And most of them, all of the disciples died saying they saw the resurrected Christ. Then you've got Peter. What about changed lives? And just his. He's, you know, you've got him on Thursday night afraid of a servant girl. A servant girl says, hey, hey, you, you know Jesus, don't you? You're a follower of his. Ah, ah, no, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. Never met the guy. Completely denies him. And yet weeks later, he stands in front of thousands and preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not just preaches it, He's arrested, he's beaten, and he's threatened, don't ever do it again, or we'll beat you again, we'll kill you. Guess what he did? He went right back out, and he kept preaching the very same day. And he was arrested again and beaten again multiple times, and ultimately he was martyred, murdered for his faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What changed? What changed from being over here, afraid to even say, I know Jesus, in front of a servant girl who really could do nothing to him, to this over here? One thing changed. He saw Jesus Christ. Folks, the, the evidence, the historical evidence, both what's inside of Scripture and what is in secular writings outside of Scripture, the evidence is there to believe in a resurrection. And what I want to conclude with today real quickly is what does that resurrection mean to us today? What does it do? Number one, it validates the Christian faith. And folks, here we are on this big blue marble. I've got to figure out what is life about. Is there an afterlife? Is there a God? Has that God spoken? Does He want anything of me? And how do I sort through it? Because there's a lot of people out there saying, we've got the God. He's right here. We've got the true God. There's all these religions, all these gods. How do you pick one? How do you know if you picked the right one? Doesn't, doesn't the resurrection just kind of cut through all that? Everything else is just debates and philosophies and ideas. But when one guy actually conquers the grave, doesn't that make you say, you know what, I think I'm going to listen to him. I think I'm going to see what he has to say. I don't know anybody else who's done that. I don't know anybody else who has proclaimed to have done that. The resurrection kind of helps us just cut through all that and say, hey, these guys' words count a little bit more. And that also means, since he said everything in here was true, hey, the guy who conquered death said what's in here is true. So that means I put a little bit more weight now on this book and what it reveals about God. So it just cuts through that. How about validating our hope? Folks, we have one great hope in this world. Our hope is not that everything works here. Our hope is not that it's all going to work out here because God's already told us it's not going to all work out here. Some things aren't going to work at all here. Our hope is in heaven and eternal life and all that comes with it. But how do you know God really raises people from the dead? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the validation 
of that. Second thing that we see in this is it shows the father's acceptance of the son's work. Now, what do I mean by that? Folks, I mean everything I just said about the death of Christ, that redemption, how do we know? That forgiveness, how do we know? It's a wonderful idea. It's great that the Bible says it, but how do we know the Father really accepts the Son's work? How do we know that His holiness and wrath is really satisfied? The resurrection says that. The resurrection says the Father is satisfied, the Father is pleased, the Father accepts, the payment is in full, and He resurrects His Son to victory. So the, the, the resurrection is what validates the death of Christ. And then, folks, lastly, the last thing that the, the resurrection says to us is it proves, once again, all of the prophecies about the resurrection that God's word comes true once again. Psalm 1610, the scripture, a thousand years before Christ entered this world, said he's going to be resurrected. Oh, he's going to go in the grave, but he's not going to rot. Did you know the Bible actually says that? The Messiah is going into the grave, but he's not going to rot. He's coming back out. Over a thousand years. Jesus prophesied it. Jesus said it over and over and over. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to rise again on the third day. Over and over and over he said it. It shows the power of God to declare what the future is going to be. Folks, it is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just the Bible. Not just the Christian faith. Your life. My life. It rests in, it's anchored in, it goes out in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what's this mean to me tomorrow when I wake up and I go into my world? Four things, super quick. Number one, it means I'm loved. What is the cross saying? It's saying, I am loved. Can I say something? I think this might come across kind of harsh. I don't think you and I have a right to walk around this world with a long, mopey face saying nobody loves me. I mean, I know we want people around us to love us and approve of us and applaud us and like us. And sometimes when they don't, we can get really, really, really down. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated, God proved His love for you. And that while you were a sinner, while you were rejecting Him, Christ died for you. He proved His love. He said, well, yeah, but I, I need somebody with skin on. That's Jesus! God with skin on! You are loved. Amen? Second thing. The second thing that it means is I'm in serious trouble if my faith is in anything. My faith for salvation, my faith for living the Christian life. I'm in serious trouble if my faith is anything but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what God's provided and that's all He's provided. That's all that's needed and if I've got my faith in what I've done or who I'm related to or the church I chose to be a part of or the denomination, folks, that won't work. It will leave you in serious trouble when you go to stand before God. And you say, well, why? Look what Jesus did. Why would the father have his son go through all that only to say, well, there's another way. There's another way. to get." What was your church attendance? Are you making the connection of how pathetic that that, that goes together. We're in trouble if we're trusting in anything else. A third thing, folks, we need to live in light of what's been done for us. Don't we? Don't I need to live in light of what happened at the cross for me? Now, you know what? Most of us in here are absolutely believing that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, should, I, should I believe in the cross. I believe in what Jesus did. I should live in light of that. Let me, let me boil that down a little bit more. It means when you're arguing with your mate 
Somewhere in that argument, it should show up in your words and your actions. Wait a minute. I am deeply loved. I have been greatly forgiven and I've got all of a tremendous future in front of me. That's what we mean when we say the cross should show up in our lives. The resurrection of Christ should show up in our lives. It should show up. It should affect my attitude and my response when I'm, when I'm going through suffering, when I'm going through loss, when I'm hurt, when I'm angry, when I'm disappointed. Somewhere in that emotion, somewhere in that circumstance, that event, I should stop and say, hey, wait a minute. Ah, I'm greatly loved. I'm deeply forgiven. See what's happening here, folks? The cross defines you. Who you are, what you're about, where you're going, how you respond. And if the cross doesn't define you, that would be a very good sign that there's a good likelihood you've not really trusted in the cross. You've not understood it and you've not received it. Folks, I think rightly lived, and I don't know that I've arrived at this. I think rightly lived, there's not a single day of my life in which the cross and resurrection is not going through my heart and mind and guiding how I act and react and do what I do in this world. And lastly, folks, the death and resurrection of Christ means that I should look at sin as in the way of everything that's good. This whole cross thing happened because of my sin. After fully understanding it, why pray tell would I return to that? It's, the, it's sin that the cross overcame. It's sin that we want to conquer. It's sin that we want to defeat. Not return to it because I'm now forgiven. We're not forgiven to sin. We're forgiven so that we can flee sin and be free from it. The New Testament calls you and me to look at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and to see our Savior and to see our living and reigning king. Let's pray. Father, I would pray for each one of us in this room that every single day of our life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes more and more real. We understand it more. We're better able to communicate it more. It begins to define more and more of how I look at life and people and circumstances. I pray that the death and resurrection of Christ would more and more and more become the single joy of my life. God, I want to arrive at the day where I possess nothing of greater value than the cross of Jesus Christ. Where there is nothing that brings me more joy, more hope, more excitement than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as that begins to happen in my life, I pray it will produce obedience. I pray it will produce faith. And I pray it will produce me being obedient more and more and more to the greatest command a believer has on his life. And that's to go into the world with the gospel. The good news. You're loved. You're forgiven. You can find it all in the cross. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, this week. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen.